Psalm 45, hear once again the word of our God, a word that will be unfading through ages everlasting, and a word that to his people holds forth nothing less than the unsearchable riches of Christ. To the chief musician upon Shoshanim, for the sons of Korah, Mashkil, a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty, ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness, and thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of over. It's far the reading of God's word, and may he bless it to us this evening. Beloved, as we take up the 45th Psalm again, as we have now for several Lord's Days, I'd remind you, of course, that the psalmist sets before us the glory of the king. The glory of that king that the apostle in the book of Hebrews tells us is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember how this king is communicated to us. As the psalmist sets before us this glorious monarch, he does so by showing us that this king is not passive. The Christ whom the psalmist has in view is not stationary. He is a conquering king. And as we took up in the, in the subsequent verses, verses 3, 4, and 5 especially, we saw there that this conquering king is prosperous, especially as he makes use of that word that is his sword, that word that is under his instrument, a word that pricks the hearts of sinners and causes the people to fall under him. This is the Christ of Psalm 45. A conquering king who, through the effectual use of the divine word, really subdues. Now, as we come to our text this evening, verses 6 and 7 of the psalm, you'll notice that the psalmist really makes something of a transition. No longer are we looking primarily at the king, as it were, in combat, but the symbols change. The, the imagery that we're given is certainly different than that what you would expect on the battlefield. In fact, what you have here, the images, the symbols in, this, in these two verses are symbols that relate far more to the palace than they do the battlefield. Uh, know what they are. They are a throne, a scepter, and oil of anointing. You see that in the, very, in the sixth verse. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's, it's a metonym. It's something that stands for something that's greater, that's beyond it. 
The throne here stands here, if you like, for the idea of one who is reigning. And that's the point. He is not one who is only, has a legitimate title to reign. But he's one who is invested with the right to reign. That is, he's already exercising his prerogative. He's already enthroned. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter, the psalmist tells us. And as we hold the throne and the scepter together, this, this image of a scepter here should communicate to us the exercise of that reign. This is a king sitting upon his throne, actually ruling. And friends, as you look at that, you, you remember here, he describes it as a right scepter. Uh, you could translate that right or straight. It's rendered this way in, in Isaiah 40. Crooked, the crooked shall be made straight. That's the word of our text. You could even render it equitable, uh, as it is in Isaiah 11. Reprove with equity the meek of the earth. This is, this is a scepter without any imperfection. This is a scepter that is not crooked, a scepter that is always wielded equitably. And then we're told, of course, that there's a reason for this. The one who wields it, the psalmist says, loves righteousness and hates wickedness. This is a right scepter because the one who wields it, really from the heart, loves right and hates sin. But then you come to that third image. As we leave the throne, as we leave the scepter, we come to that oil of anointing. God, thy God, says the psalmist, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. And just briefly, beloved, when we think about oil and we think about its anointing purposes, of course, throughout the Old Testament, you know various offices in the church under age would have had anointing. The priests, of course, were anointed. Prophets were anointed. And, of course, the king was anointed. But, but what was the anointing? What did it do? The anointing of itself, even if, as some commentators believe, it came, it came with it, the grace of the Spirit of God equipping those ones anointed to do the work they've been called to do, nevertheless, it was primarily, especially as you read with regard to the kingship, it was primarily an act whereby the king was declared to be king. If one was anointed... The principal thought of the people was that was really a declaration that this one has the prerogative to rule. To be anointed was to be declared king. And here's what you have in the text. You have one then who has been anointed by God himself to take the throne, to take the scepter that we have in view. The anointing declares his right. And then we're told that this oil that is given here, it's an oil of gladness, but something above his fellows. The word fellows there could be translated friends. This is a king who has been anointed, who is without peer. His anointing shows, declares as much. Now, beloved, as you look at this text, obviously there are two things that we have to deal with. First of all, we have to deal with what you have in the sixth verse, a very emphatic statement. Thy throne, O God. It's a staggering statement, isn't it? So far the psalmist has been setting before the people of God this image of a king. A king who's endowed, of course, with, with royal authority and regal glory. And, and now when he comes to describe the king, he, 
He calls him none other than God. And that's how you're supposed to understand that. The words, oh God, they're vocative, meaning he's really directing his attention. He's, he's really proclaiming these things to the king himself. But when he addresses the king, this is the way in which he addresses him. As God. Now, in the scriptures you'll find something like you would in Psalm 82 or Psalm 138. Magistrates called gods. Angels in Psalm 138 called gods. But when the Apostle Paul in Hebrews 1 takes up this text, takes up Psalm 45, he says this text is spoken specifically to the Son to the exclusion of angels and men. In fact, as you follow the argument of Hebrews 1, that's what's so crucial to his argument. That what is said here is said really of one who is possessed of the divine nature, unlike the other uses of the word that you might find with regard to angels or other magistrates. This is the usage that is not analogical. This is really the psalmist saying the one who is king in this psalm is divine. And then, beloved, as you look at the very next line, of course, there's another question that's raised. If, if the psalmist simply leaves us with the sixth verse, I suppose everything stands fairly neat and tidy. But then you come to that seventh verse. God thy God hath anointed thee. Now, beloved, we understand, of course, that our God, by virtue of his deity, is God over all, possesses as God absolute authority over all things. But he possesses that from eternity as an expression, really, of that omnipotence and that right that is inherent to deity. But in our text, the king that is in view is anointed. He's anointed. And what do we make of that? Well, friend, we make of that what we have the previous texts before, and that is that what the king, what, what, sorry, what the psalmist has in view here is a king that is invested with this kingship. In other words, we're not talking about that kingship that God possesses eternally from himself as God. The kingship that the psalmist has in view is one that comes with anointing, it is one that comes as the king is commissioned, appointed to the work. This is the mediatorial kingship of Jesus Christ that's in view. Now, beloved, if we hold all of these things together, what do we find? The theme that is certainly prevalent in these two verses is that Christ himself reigns forever as Zion's righteous king. Christ reigns forever as Zion's righteous king. And I want us to consider that, just according to what we have in the text. First, the duration of this kingship, its description, and then finally, I want us also to consider the declaration of this kingship. Now, both as we take up these words, and we begin here with the sixth verse, we have this expression this one who is called God, but this one who has been anointed to be king. Well, we're told here that his throne is forever and ever. In the Hebrew, the expression is very clear. It, it has with it the idea communicated in the English, forever and ever. 
That is, without end, this throne shall endure. And what's striking is, as you look at that phrase, as you look at olam ba'ad, that's the Hebrew for it, what's striking is, as the scriptures use that throughout the scriptures, it is always and only tied to deity. Let me give you an example. The Lord shall reign forever and ever, Exodus 15:18. The Lord is king forever and ever, Psalm 10:16 that we just sang. For this God is our God forever and ever, Psalm 48:15. This idea of everlasting perpetuity belongs to deity and of necessity. Even David himself, even his throne, is not, as we found here, really ascribed these kinds of things. It's the one who sits on David's throne, who is the God-man, who will sit there forever and ever. But then as you look throughout the scriptures, you'll find that not only is it the case that we have these parallels in language, but we have the themes all throughout. Take what we have, of course, in Isaiah 9. Words that are familiar to us. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. Again, Luke 1. He shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there shall be no end. Second Peter 1. The everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. With one voice the scriptures proclaim that he who is Zion's king will forever be Zion's king. Now, we see here then that Christ's mediatorial kingship is everlasting. But you may raise a question. And it's a question that we hinted to now a month or so ago. And that is a question that is derived from 1 Corinthians 15. You remember in 1 Corinthians 15 we have these words. The apostle says, Then cometh the end when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. Then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. And at first brush it seems that 1 Corinthians 15 is telling us that that there will come a time when the kingship of Christ comes to a conclusion, that he will deliver that up to the Father. And so what do we make of that? How do we reconcile these texts that say Christ as king, as king in Zion, will reign forever, and yet the apostle says, seems to say at least, that the kingship will one day be rendered back to the Lord. Well, beloved, I would just call your attention to two things, and I think this will help us understand, or even better, how to apply this truth that Christ is forever king over his own. Take just for a moment the consideration of what was delivered according to 1 Corinthians 15. It was the kingdom, not the kingship, that is delivered over to God in that text. In other words, it was that which is ruled and not the throne itself that is delivered back to the Lord. And then secondly, take for, all, take for instance also what becomes subject to God. We're told there, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him. The subject that is under God here is the Son. Now we know, our confession is quite clear, our catechisms as well, that the Son of God is consubstantial with the Father. 
He is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, equal in power and glory. There is no eternal and essential subordination of the Son of God. But yet there's a subjection here with regard to the Son. How could we consider that? Well, beloved, as we look at this, we understand, of course, that the Son is subject to the Father in this way, as He takes upon Himself the work of mediator. He is not essentially, that is, in His being, diminished in any way from from the glory of the Father. But as He does the work of mediator, He is subject to Him. And so it's Christ as mediator that we have in view here, not Christ in his eternal divine divine nature. But secondly, we also recognize too that the apostle is dealing here with that which is ruled. The kingdom will be delivered to the Father. And why is this so important? And how does this help us understand our text this evening? Beloved, what 1 Corinthians 15 highlights is just this. That there will come a time when the Son of God will render that which He has ruled and will say pointedly, the purpose for my ruling over it has been consummate. I have accomplished all that was required in my reign, in my rule. And in fact, you find this even in 1 Corinthians 15 itself. Till He hath put all enemies under His feet. The idea, beloved, is that there is a teleology, a purpose to the kingship of Christ. That is that he would rule all things and subdue all things back to God. It's not that Christ, his kingship, will at all be diminished. All the texts that we read before stand in perfect harmony with 1 Corinthians 15. But that he will rule in a different way after he has subdued all that were his enemies. One of our forebears put it this way. In 1 Corinthians 15, we're supposed to see that a new mode of intercourse with the deity shall then be introduced to the exclusion, not of the mediator and his kingship, but of those institutions and ordinances which were deemed necessary for the saints in their present state of existence. In other words, those ways in which God rules through Jesus Christ as mediatorial king today will change once that kingdom is brought to its consummation. But beloved, as we think about our own text this evening, this teaches us that the purpose of Christ's ruling, in part, is to subdue all things that he might then bring it all back to God. It's the idea that you have in Daniel 9. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people, but it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. Now, beloved, in that text, you have, of course, there the prophet speaking primarily of the church. But as you remember, when we think of the kingship of Christ, we think of Christ's kingdom as a kingdom within a kingdom. The church is that interior kingdom, but but really the kingship of Christ is universal. And the point of then Daniel 9 is this, that our king that's in our text in Psalm 45 will so rule all things that all other kingdoms, all other kingdoms will be broken in pieces and consumed. Under the sway of his scepter, and as the apostle puts it, as he is made head over all things to the church, he will indeed subdue all things under him and for the good of his people. Now, beloved, as we think of that, 
that helps us understand, at least in part, why something like this should be part of Zion's Book of Praise. It is a steadfast reminder, no matter what might appear to the people of God at any given age, that the king whom we adore in Psalm 45 is a king who certainly will accomplish all of his purposes. Let Zion be reduced in any age to difficulty and even to confusion. Christ will still prevail. He must. But that brings us, secondly, and really powerfully to this next point. He sets, of course, before us an everlasting kingdom. But he describes it to us in this way. He says, this scepter which he yields is a right scepter. And then he says, thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. The idea, of course, here is that the king, his rule, his reign here, is impeccably righteous. But what's striking about Psalm 45 is, as you look at this particular text, you see that he gives to us the source, if you like, of this righteousness, and the effect, or, or really the product of that source. The source is what follows, that this one who sits upon the throne loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And because of that, because of that, we are sure his scepter is not crooked. Because of that, we are sure his is a right scepter. What's interesting about this text, as we're told here that Christ's rule is impeccably righteous, is that this is the first time the psalmist describes for us the heart of Christ, the heart of the king. We've had much, you know, about what Christ will do. We we, we found already several descriptions given to us about how Christ will be equipped and how he will function in his office. But this is the first time that the psalmist takes us, as it were, into the interior to set open before us, really, what is truly the sacred heart of of Jesus. We find here an explanation of his affections. Beloved, as we think about this, it's important to remember that what we have in front of us, of course, is a description of one who is the second person of the adorable trinity. We are thinking here of a divine person who from all of eternity is possessed of perfect righteousness, altogether glorious, altogether holy. But you remember that when we come to Psalm 45, it is not only the second person of the Godhead that we have in view, but it is the Son of God as He is incarnate as he undertakes the work of redemption that is set before us here. And so, of course, as this psalm sets before us the righteousness of God, we we think of our God as he possesses a settled disposition toward righteousness and against iniquity. But we should never forget that in this text, we also have a description of the heart of Christ the man. The heart of Jesus Christ as he walks Theanthropos as the God-man. And beloved, don't we see expressions of this very truth even throughout the Gospels? I'll just give you one. Take John 2.27 for a moment. You remember, whenever, whenever Christ goes into the temple to cleanse it, the apostles look back on that moment and they remember a text. The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. It's a striking, it's a striking turn of phrase, isn't it? 
The zeal of thine house hath eaten me up. The zeal, first of all. He's saying here that these things have exercised him. And then he says the degree to which they've exercised him. They, as it were, have gripped the inmost part of him. Gripped him to the point of trembling, really. Beloved, what you have here is a picture of Jesus Christ, the God-man, the second Adam, who is consumed with the glory of God and who despises iniquity. You see, and throughout scriptures you have, as believers describe their own spiritual experiences, you have things before us there that, if you like, almost open to us just a bit of the veil that show us what we're describing here. Note how the psalmist describes his own experience. He says, I beheld the transgressors and was grieved because they kept not thy word. Again, Rivers of water run down mine eyes because they keep not thy law. Believers in Jude are described as those who, are hate, who hate even the garments spotted by the flesh. Beloved, what you have in this text is a solemn declaration that our Christ, the second Adam, hates sin and loves righteousness to the fullest degree. He loves righteousness as he ought to love righteousness, and he hates iniquity as he ought to hate iniquity. And I think at this point I really need to stop, don't I? This is a Christ of whom we are so very much unfamiliar Christ in the gospel calls us to come as we are. To come as we are sinners. He certainly calls us to. But the point of this text is to show us that Christ calls us to come as we are. Yes, but not so as to remain that way. You see, Christ calls us to come sinners that we are, but Christ will not leave us as he finds us. He will deal with us. He will deal, of course, with the guilt of our sin. But He will also deal with our sin itself. And why would that be? Beloved, because our Christ, in a settled way, even as man, hates iniquity. Now let me make it more personal. He hates your sin and He hates my sin. Oh, he loves souls, and we praise and bless him for it. But make no mistake, our Christ loves righteousness and hates iniquity. Hates it. We're told here that the effect of this disposition is that he possesses a right scepter. And so what does that mean? Christ as king, note how the apostles put it in Acts 5, God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, speaking of Christ, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
as he wields the scepter, as our confession and catechisms rightly remind us, as part of his work as kingship is to deal with that which he hates in his people. He subdues them to himself by granting them repentance. That is part of the kingship of Christ. Beloved, he loves the souls of his own, but he hates their iniquity, and in his rule, he will deal with it. He will deal with it, and very decisively. Friends, as we think about this text, as it sets before us the Lord Jesus Christ, as we think about this, as it sets before us his heart, do we not see here the moral perfections of our Redeemer? Well, this is a deep that we could walk into and never find its bottom. Analogies fail us almost at every turn. What does it mean for Christ to love earnestly and from the heart all righteousness and hating all wickedness? What does that mean? Friend, just by way of illustration, I suppose... If I came in one day and I said that I had a device in which I could broadcast your inmost thoughts, I would not have a friend in the world. And the world would tremble. The world would tremble at the thought. And you have to ask the question, why is that such a fearful thing? That I could broadcast the inmost thoughts of men. Well, it's fearful, isn't it? Because, not because I'm implanting anything fearful in there, but because we know deep down what lies within. We know that beyond this veneer that's cool and, and collected and seems to be fairly well, we know that within it there's an iniquity, a world of iniquity that even believers hardly contemplate. Even we can hardly penetrate its depths. So it's a fearful thing that those things could be displayed. But beloved, if that were to be applied to Christ, what would we find? I wouldn't just tell you that we would find white, hot purity. I would say to you that if we could peer into the heart of Christ, you and I would fall down as dead. We would see there a purity that you and I hardly even know how to describe. Take the believer at his best moment, the highest exercises of his grace, and beloved, I believe with all that is in me, he would fall down as dead, peering even just for a moment into what it means for Christ to love all righteousness and to hate all wickedness. This is the Christ, beloved, that so few want. A Christ who calls us to come as we are, but allows none to remain that way. They come that they might be changed. Come that he may remove their sin. Comes that they might be made more into his likeness. But thirdly and finally as we close, this is a righteous kingship. And it is declared to us, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. There's there's a sense of causality between these two things. Christ possesses a right scepter. He loves righteousness, hates wickedness. But as you look at this text, 
You find there that the idea is that therefore, because Christ is such, God thy God hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness. Now what do we make of that? Well, beloved, as we think about that, we think that this is not initiation and this is not the decree. The idea there is, is that this is truly a declaration. In one sense, Christ was prophet, priest, and king long before his incarnation. As soon as, of course, men began to draw down on saving benefits, they drew down on benefits that accrued to them through an, a, a mediator who was already prophet, priest, and king. But there was a time when Christ was powerfully declared to be king. And it's what you have in Philippians 2 that we read. There at his resurrection we have there a solemn declaration. And even if you like, a solemn investiture of this office. And so what you find in his resurrection, as one of our forebears put it, is this. At his resurrection there was a more ample display a more extensive exercise of Christ's regal power than before. It was not that Christ became king, he clarifies, but there was a more extensive exercise, a more ample display of his kingship. And beloved, as you look at this then, what do we find? Well, beloved, we find here that our king has been solemnly proclaimed as such with nothing less than his victory over death. No coronation, if you like, has ever been so solemn or so glorious. As you look at this text, what you have here then is really the self-same thing you have in the beginning of Romans 1. Paul says, I'm preaching the gospel of God concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This is the oil of gladness, the anointing that you have in our text this evening. And beloved, just by way of application, how does that apply to us? Well, just take, if you will, the moment, just for a moment, the Sabbath day. The change in the Sabbath day is, of course, because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This solemn declaration that he is Zion's only king. And so the fact that we gather today on the first day of the week, if we are thinking spiritually, beloved, it should speak much to us about the kingship of Christ. He has solemnly in history to the change of all things been declared as the psalmist here presents him. Just as surely as we worship him now on the first rather than the seventh day of the week, he is surely enthroned and declared to be so with power. As we close, beloved, I remind you just a few things. First of all, I said to you at the very onset of our time in Psalm 45 that this is not a systematic picture of Christ's kingship. The psalmist here is not setting before us a system of theology primarily. Uh, we go to other texts of scripture for clarity on these issues. Texts like the ones that we've already cited this evening. So what is Psalm 45 really? If it's not a systematic overview of the kingship of Christ, it certainly is it certainly is a text that is supposed to warm our affections toward this kingship. 
Well, do you remember that's how the psalmist himself starts? He gives us a pattern. A pattern that we ourselves are to follow as we meditate on these things. Beloved, as we look at this, though, it begs the question, does this theme then thrill us? As we contemplate the things that we have this evening, is this something, is this something that grabs your heart? If it doesn't, we're not reading and we're not hearing the psalm right. This is to be sung in praise, with grace and with understanding from the heart. And the question, of course, even in addition to that, as the psalmist reflects on the character of Christ, you see that he rejoices in this, that this is a righteous king who hates sin and who loves righteousness. Does the moral perfection of Christ, does that thrill you? Does that thrill you this evening? But for the believer... What does this text hold forth? I've spoken to you with regard to that second point on the righteousness of Christ. And beloved, I would submit to you that this is one of the least considered aspects of Christology that we have. But take just for a moment what this implies then with regard to Calvary. You have the one who hates Right, who hates wickedness and loves righteousness without diminution, without any abatement, without any interruption. He hates blasphemy. He hates lying. He despises all iniquity. And yet at the zenith of his humiliation, he was called a blasphemer, a liar, one who presumed, presumed favor with God. Friend, let me ask you a question this evening. If you were to be accused, if you were to be accused of that one evil that you esteem to be the worst of all, that one evil that you respond to in the most visceral way, and you knew, even you knew that you had not been accused of it, I can almost guarantee you that it would inflict a pain on you that would be hard to express in the words. If you were accused of that one evil that you detested from the inmost depths of your being above all, even if you and your, good, and your conscience were clear, the accusation would be a grief to you. And beloved, even though these accusations were not the zenith of Christ's humiliation. They were still part of it. The one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness was accused of all. And why? Willingly, he came under that pain. Willingly, he came under Willingly, he came under that disrepute that he might save those who were really guilty of all of those charges. Beloved, we do not know the pain. 
we cannot, we cannot quantify the grief that even just this would exercise, and yet he did it freely and willingly for his own. The one who always loved righteousness and hated wickedness was crucified among thieves as one who is presumptuous and a blasphemer, that you might have life. So then can we think lightly of sin? Can we think lightly of rebellion? Can we think lightly, believer, as sin, of sin, knowing that it is against Christ's very heart? Rutherford put it this way. You sin, saith the love of loves, and I suffer. You did the wrong, I make amends. You sin and sing in your carnal joys, I sigh and I weep for your true joy. The fairest face that ever was, was foul with weeping for your sinful rejoicing. Beloved, does a picture of a righteous king as we have in Psalm 45 break our hearts over sin? Does it cause us to long more and more that we might be conformed to his likeness and die more and more to sin? But I trust if we're thinking rightly about this text, that's its effect. And may the Lord make that, make that true of us, even this evening. Amen.